It has been um, a heavy week, I guess you could say, uh, in many respects as you think through all the things that our world is facing and then, uh, just really wanted to create space for us to gather together as a church family and pray um, for the things that we're seeing. Uh, also use that as a way for us to reflect upon the importance of our gathering um, and, and what a gift and what a blessing it is that we can come here week after week and worship and celebrate and be reminded of these truths and, and to walk through them with a certain focus and with a certain intentionality. Um, it is always a joy. Um, and it is a true gift uh, that I feel each and every week that I have the opportunity to come and worship with you all. And I, I hope that you feel that as well. I, I missed being with you last week. A uh, special word of thanks to Sam Parrish for filling in. Uh, and, and I'm always grateful for our teaching team and the folks that I can call upon when I know that I'm going to be out or if, if we want to invite someone else to share. And it's just a special word of thanks because I don't know if you always know what's going on behind the scenes for those folks to do that because uh, I get paid to do this, that y'all give me time throughout the week to prepare. Everybody else I call upon, they have other jobs that they're doing, and they've got to prepare a sermon on top of those other responsibilities. But it was especially difficult uh, for Sam this last week because not only did he have his own responsibilities at work, but I believe the uh, stomach bug ripped through your house pretty well uh, also. And so uh, a lot of things that were on top of his uh, normal prep time, and not only that, it wasn't like I gave him John 3.16. I said, hey, go preach about the curse in Genesis 3. So uh, not an easy task, but as always, I handled it incredibly well. I'm so grateful for Sam's heart and the way that he can lead you into God's word and an understanding of his truth. So special word of thanks to him. Uh, I was out with my family camping. We went camping in uh, Mineral Well State Park last week, which was a great time. Uh, I didn't grow up camping. Any campers? Raise your hand out here. Any people just love camping? Okay, not as many as I thought. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't grow up camping, uh, so I didn't really get exposed to it to, to a great extent. That was something that I started to get familiar with maybe later in high school, a little bit of college, but it really accelerated in, in the early years of marriage. Jennifer comes from a family that loves the outdoors and camping, and so when we moved to California, uh, there were numerous places that were just gorgeous where you could go and camp. And so we did that often in the early years of our marriage, and, and it really took, and I've always loved it. And so we try to make it some part of our regular rhythm for our family. Uh, we, we don't live in California, and, and so we avoid the extreme heat of Texas summers and the crazy, unpredictable uh, cool of Texas winters, and we try to make something happen in the fall or in the spring, and uh, we got some perfect weather while we were there. It was great, and, and it was really a great experience. Now, I will tell you, uh, I think part of the reason I love it is I just love being in nature. Uh, it's, there's really nothing like it, being able to go out and see a lake and a sunset kind of come down on it, and just to go on these these hikes and these trails and just be surrounded by God's creation is really remarkable. I love being out there at night and looking up at the sky and just seeing an amazing amount of stars that you don't get to see when you're in the city. Uh, I love being able to be removed uh, from any distractions, right? We had very limited cell service, uh, which made it difficult to follow the, uh, the Texas Ranger scores uh, from time to time, but we got the updates when we needed them and I already knew who had won the game earlier that day on Saturday. Um, which was pretty great as well. So anyway, all that to say, all those distractions that were gone, it was, it was a great experience for us. Now, that being said, camping still comes with effort, if you've ever done it. Uh, it it's not easy. There's a lot that you have to do to get ready and prepare. Uh, it, there's a little bit of an irony in it because the idea is that you're leaving 
your house, but a lot of times you pack your whole house with you uh, to go and make it uh, survivable. And we do that as well. It reminds me of skiing in a lot of ways, right? You, with, when you go skiing, you have to rent the gear, you have to lug the gear, you have to travel with the gear, you have to put on the gear, then you have to somehow get up a mountain. And it takes some effort before you finally get to that place where you go, ah, oh, it's worth it. Same thing with camping, man. You're, you're buying groceries, getting pots and pans, you're getting tents and bedding and all this stuff, and you're loading the car, you're unloading the car, you're building it all up. It takes some time before you finally get to a place where you go, oh, okay, this is worth it. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of effort. There's a lot that you have to do. But one of the things that I really appreciated about this most recent camping trip uh, was the age of my children. Uh, we, we've moved out of the, the season where when we used to go camping, they were just additional hazards running around us, right? We're like, don't fall in the fire and don't get in that poison ivy. Um, but now they're at an age where they're somewhat self-sufficient and, and they're great helpers. Uh, they, they helped throughout the whole process. I mean, there was one day, one afternoon where uh, James and Annabelle built, the, uh, got the fire started on their own, which was really cool. Uh, they helped us with, with meal prep. They would help clean up the campsite at night. It was really, really cool. Uh, but one aspect of it that really stood out to me was especially when we were loading up to get ready to go, taking all the tent down and putting everything up in the car. And my son, my oldest son, uh, consistently came up to me and said, hey, Dad, how, what can I do next? What can I do to help? And, and he was consistently offering that. And the reason it stood out to me, and uh, parents in the room, you'll understand this, you'll appreciate why it was so significant, uh, is because nobody asked him to do that. <laughs> he was actually offering help uh, without being forced to help. And, and that was a really great gift for a teenage boy. And I was really uh, grateful for it and proud of it in a lot of ways that we didn't have to threaten, you know, you lose all your privileges in order for him to help me load the car. He just wanted to do it. And that was a really cool thing to see. And part of why it was so significant for me is that as the recipient and the beneficiary of that help, what that communicated was he said, hey, I, I see what you're carrying. Like, I see what you're doing. Uh, there's a genuine concern, not like an intense worry, but just a concern that I see you in this moment. I want to help you with this weight. I want to help you with this load. That, that's what help really communicates. It communicates to us that, that we're seen, right, and that someone's concerned about us and they want to do something for us. And that is the essence of what we're going to be looking at today, right? The gift of what it means to know that we have a God who helps us. That, that when you go through life and you begin to wonder, like, have I escaped his notice? Does he see me? Does he understand what I'm carrying? What the scriptures consistently reveal to us is our God is a God who helps he looks upon his children, he looks upon us, and he has a genuine concern. He says, I see you, I notice you, I'm here to help you. What a gift that is. Now, I want to I make a connection to how this is working into our series, okay? So we've been talking about identity for quite some time, uh, and really specifically the idea of having courageous identity, that when we know who we are, right, when we understand who we are in God, that that's going to allow us to live a very courageous life. And so we walk through this by asking, why do we even question our existence? Why do we question our sense of identity? We work through Ecclesiastes. We work through the Psalms to establish how we tend to wrestle with that. But then we ultimately landed with this discussion on the image of God. And we've been spending a great amount of time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 talking about uh, how we've been made in the image of God. What does that mean? What are the implications for it on our, our worth, our sense of worth and work and uh, relationships and all these different things. And when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it is such a beautiful depiction 
Like it's this incredible ideal that God has outlined for us that we want to aspire to. And while it's inspiring and it's encouraging, there's a moment throughout the whole discussion that kind of nags at you, doesn't it? Because it almost feels unattainable, right? Because what we all know is that we fall short of that ideal, right? As beautiful as it is, wonderfully as it was designed and created, we feel frustrated with it because we don't flourish with the image of God like we need to or like we want to. And we look around in a world where it's constantly um, broken and it's constantly being taken advantage of or, or killed and defeated and all these different things that just grieve us. And so why is that? Well, that's why we went through Genesis 3. Right? The problem with us being able to attain to the things that God initially created and intended was because of sin. It's because of the fall. It's because of the curse. Right? And so we live in this frustrated state. And, and so we need help. And so what we're going to do now is recognize how God helps us rediscover, restore the image of the eternal one that he has given us. And that that restoration, that help, right, that provision, that reconciliation comes through Jesus Christ. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to see how does God use Jesus to restore that image and lead us in this path of flourishing. We're going to look at the incarnation. We're going to look at this death and his resurrection. And then we're going to look at the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Right? That, that's how we're going to wrap up this series. And so my point for us today as we get started is that nothing, very few things in Scripture communicate as profoundly uh, God's willingness and his desire to help his people than the incarnation. Right? The fact that God took on flesh and dwelled among us. That's what we're going to look at today. So grab your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, we're going to get a really good depiction of how this incarnation unfolds. And when I say incarnation, what I mean by that is obviously the fact that, that God takes on flesh and dwells among us. As John's gospel describes it, that the Word, the Word being Jesus Christ, uh, put on flesh and dwelled among us, okay? And so I, there's this beautiful paragraph that explains the incarnation and the implications of it for us. Uh, but I want to give you some context before we read it. Okay, so in, in Hebrews chapter 1, we're actually going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 first, just because I want you to see how the author starts this conversation. Then I'm going to lead you on a little bit of a progression before we get to our focal text today. So following along in Gen uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, the author says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay, so just to start, the author's saying, God's spoken to you in so many different ways throughout the past. Man, he's, using, he's used prophets. He's used all these different ways to communicate who he is. Now he is speaking to you through his son, through Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He's the one that through whom all things were made. He is the sustainer of all things. So we look to Jesus to understand who God is. Now let's see how he continues. He says, after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So this is an interesting transition statement that we're not going to dive into in depth today. But what the author does now is make a comparison of, of the son of Jesus to the angels. And if you were to keep reading, 
chapter 1, you would see all these different scripture references that the author brings forward to substantiate that point, that, that the Son, that Christ is superior to the angels, and all the different ways that scripture supports that. Then you get to chapter 2, and, and we get this statement that says, however, he didn't call us to subject ourselves to the angels. Like, that's not who we're, we're going to. And, and so this comparison of, of the angels and the role of the angels and how that relates to Jesus is kind of the thread that's bringing us together. And so when he begins to explain that we weren't being invited to come to subject ourselves to the angels, it transitions him to explain that Christ, though superior to the angels, was actually made lower than the angels. And he begins to reference Psalm 8. Right? And if you're familiar with Psalm 8, it's, it's, it's written right there if you want to just look at it. Uh, in chapter 2, it says uh, in Psalm 8, What is mankind that you are mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him, yet you made him a little lower than the angels? And so chapter 1 and 2 of Hebrews is this really interesting discussion of how Jesus is both superior and inferior, lower than the angels. And so when he's starting talking about the lower part of the angels, he's really beginning to reference the fleshly embodiment of the Son. And so he begins to explain this solidarity that Jesus has with the children of God, right? He says they are of the same family, which is why he can call us brothers and sisters. And so the author is talking about the solidarity that Jesus shares with humanity, and that leads to this beautiful passage about the incarnation, starting in verse 14. This is what we're going to look at this morning. He says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity— so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people." Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, it's a beautiful passage, and there are several things that I want us to extract from it today and learn how the incarnation, the fleshly embodiment of the Savior, uh, shows us God's plan of restoration of his image in each of us and how he uses Christ to do that through the incarnation. So we're just going to work through this little by little. We'll start with the first part of verse 14. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Uh, so the, the point of emphasis for the incarnation is that Jesus shared in the humanity that you and I know and that we possess, specifically flesh and blood. In fact, if you look at this, this verse in the Greek, there is no Greek word for humanity that's referenced here. It's really just pointing back uh, to flesh and blood, that essentially Jesus um, inherited or, or took on flesh and blood just like we did. Um, and, and that is a remarkable fact. Right? What we have here is an unapologetic declaration of the humanity of Christ. He took on flesh and blood. Right? He, was, he was human in every way. And I want you to, to like reflect upon that. And, and I, I will acknowledge that part of what we're venturing into is, is a mysterious thing for our minds to comprehend. But let's emphasize the significance of the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, shared in our humanity, right, shared in flesh and blood. There's this great quote from Carmen Joy Imes in Being God's Image. I've quoted this book several times throughout this series. Here's another one that she offers that I think puts it in a very um, just practical understanding and a way for understand uh, the incarnation. 
She says, like all of us, Jesus was human. He experienced all that we do. Hunger, thirst, weariness, temptation. He required sleep. He wept over loss. He was bullied, betrayed. He knew longing, desire, and pain. He was injured, bled, and scarred. He was fully human. That's remarkable. And it carries tremendous significance. And we're going to work through the significance and the implications of it a little bit this morning. And here's one of the things that I want to make sure we don't lose sight of, okay? Um, when we get together on Wednesday nights for Theology Matters, for those of you all that are able to come, you've heard me say this, but Wednesday night, um, we have this little Q&A session for anyone that wants to talk a little bit more about what we've preached on Sunday morning. If you have questions from the sermon, if you just have subjects you want to talk about and go deeper, we gather together and we work through it. And before we start every session, we often refer back to this quote, um, I think it's normally attributed to St. Augustine, I can't remember, uh, but we often say we want unity in what's primary, liberty in what's secondary, and in all things charity. And, and so the idea is that, hey, there are some core fundamental doctrinal beliefs that we need to find unity in. There are going to be others that we, we don't always agree on, right? So you start thinking about other ways like um, our, our view on church governance or how people administer baptism or the Lord's Supper or worship styles, all these things that different denominations kind of rally around and identify themselves, we would say those are secondary issues and there needs to be a certain liberty that we extend to one another, right? But in all things, whether we agree or disagree, let's maintain charity, let's maintain love, right? And the challenge with that is, is, is while that's a great statement, the challenge with it is that we don't always know what is secondary and what's primary. Like what are the things that we need to hold tightly to and not surrender and cling to? And the reason I say that to you this morning is because what we're talking about right here it is primary. Like this is an essence, like an essential element of the gospel that we cannot surrender. We must find complete unity around this fact. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. The scriptures teach that consistently throughout. We can never minimize the significance of his deity nor his humanity. It is clearly stressed and explicitly stated throughout the text that he was fully human, sharing in flesh and blood. The question that we need to ask ourselves this morning, if we see it so clearly stated, and we know it's such an essential part of our, our foundational understanding of the gospel, is why? Why did he take on flesh and blood? What was the reason for it? What does it mean for us? And that's where this passage gives us greater Let's continue with verse 14 and then also include 15. Here's why he did it. So that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. All right, now, I told you uh, a second ago that next week is we're really going to focus on the death and the resurrection of Christ and what that accomplishes for us. So I'm not going to go to it into great detail, but here's a very simple understanding for us today as it relates to the incarnation. Jesus came to die. He took on flesh. He shared it in our humanity that he would face and endure death. My point is this, right? His experience to be fully human was not just for the good parts of humanity. It wasn't just the good parts of existence. When he shared in our humanity, he shared in every bit of it, including mortality, including death. He came to experience that death, to face it head on. 
right? That is, that is why he came. And by doing that, and what we'll unpack next week, is that by facing that, what he does is he comes to break the power of the one who has the power over death. That is the devil. And to set us free from the fear of death. That's why he took on flesh. That's why him sharing in our humanity is so important. He comes to nullify the power of death and set us free from the fear of death. Now, when he talks about nullifying and breaking the power of death, he references the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Now, what does that mean? All right, one of the things that I want to make sure that we understand is that nothing in Scripture ever seems to suggest in even the remote sense that, that the devil, the adversary, that the evil one has equal or greater power than God. Nothing in Scripture suggests that. But he does have power. Right? And, and what this verse seems to imply and suggest to us is that that power uh, is really existing and tangible in the realm of death. And so here's how I I interpret it, right, is that essentially as we've walked through Genesis 3, you have the serpent that offers this deception that leads to sin, that leads to the curse. And what is the deception? You won't die. You'll be like God, right? And, and that was a distortion of God's truth, that when we have this separation from our creator and we live apart from the one who is life, then we now have death enter into the world. Death becomes a reality for our existence. And because it was the the serpent that deceived us into that new reality. And now that we see that from dust we were made and dust we will return and everything in creation is going to be subjected to some form of decay and death, that's the realm where the adversary, the evil one, gets to exert his power. And so you and I live in this realm and we see that power on display. Ephesians 6 says, Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the principalities of the air. Right, I believe it's in 1 Peter, if I'm not mistaken, right, that describes the devil as what? A roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You and I live in this realm where the power of death is held by this, this adversary and he rules it over us seeking for someone to devour. Right? And so Christ takes on flesh and faces that enemy to strip him of that power. <laughs> and the only way he does it is by actually facing death itself. And when he encounters that, not only does he nullify that power, he sets us free from the fear of death. Right? That everyone has been held in this bondage, in this slavery. And there's some irony when we read that in comparison to the stories that we've read in Genesis, right? That God created us to rule, created us to have dominion, but because of sin, because of the curse, we're now in bondage, in bondage to a fear of death. And so what Christ does by, by taking on flesh and dwelling among us and embracing and encountering this death, we see Jesus presented as a victor, as a conqueror, as one who is going to defeat and destroy this power and set us free, a liberator of sorts, that that is what he is coming to do. And so let me be very clear to you, right? And we've talked about this before, but it, it's something we've got to be reminded of day after day, time after time. Nothing sets you free from that fear. Nothing breaks that power of death. Not your money, not your family, not your health. The one thing 
that gives you that victory, the one thing that gives you that freedom is Jesus. And so I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to think through this. I want you to think about your life, and I want you to ask yourself, are you walking in fear or are you walking in freedom? Because the fact that you have a God that took on flesh and dwelt among us, shared in your humanity to the point of facing mortality itself, shows you that you've been set free. We need to walk in freedom. We need to walk in fearlessness because that's who our God is. That's what he has done. And by doing this, Jesus gives us this incredible example through contrast by his response to death in comparison to Adam's. Right? It, we got a true and better Adam basically here with Jesus. Because here's what happens. Jesus' death doesn't result from disobedience. His death actually results from obedience. You see the difference? Right? Again, uh, Carmen Joy Imes puts this in a very appropriate way. Uh, she says, as the second Adam, Jesus relives the choice of the first humans. Faced with the same choice as the first humans, Jesus conquered sin and death by facing it head on and receiving the judgment that humanity deserved. He did so willingly, taking on the full penalty of human rebellion as our representative. Jesus is the inverse of the first humans, innocent and willing to die, while the first humans were guilty and blaming each other. And so the point is this. Because he takes on flesh and shares in our humanity, he now serves as the example of what we were created to do, right? Which is not to live a life of disobedience, but faithful obedience, even to the point of death. Jesus never stepped aside from all that humanity and the experience of flesh and blood meant for him to experience, including death. He was faithful through it all, faithful to death. And that's exactly what you and I are called to do. He gives the example of what obedience looks like for those that want to live in relationship with the Creator. It's a remarkable example, and it only takes place for you and I to observe if He shares in our humanity and shows us the way. So the passage continues. This next verse uh, is a little bit quicker for us to reflect upon. Verse 16 says, For surely it is not the angels He helps, but Abraham's descendants. Uh, we've talked about the comparison of the angels, and this is where he begins to tease out the idea that all this is happening to help us. But he references Abraham's descendants. Now, we know Abraham is the father of, of all nations, many nations, and so this is still a reference to humanity. But it also can be understood that Jesus, when he takes on flesh, is coming to, as an incarnate Jew, essentially. He's coming from the line and the promises of Abraham. All right? And so you've got that reference in verse 16. Now, verse 17 reiterates the importance of, of the incarnation. He says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So again, sharing in our humanity, um, fo made fully like them in every way, uh, has another implication that I wanted to, to reference this morning. And this is something that we've talked about through the course of this series. That when we think about the embodied Christ, it should reiterate the importance of our embodied existence as well, right? That what I've tried to establish consistently throughout this series is that, yes, there is a spiritual world and there is a physical world. There, those are two realities, and the Bible clearly explains those, teaches those. We can see that, that they are distinct. However, there is not one that's more important than the other, right? They, they are both fused together with a high level of importance. 
And what our culture often gets us to think and what we often fall into the trap of thinking is that we just need to set our souls free from the physical world. And so what you see with this emphasis of the incarnation and Jesus sharing in our humanity is that he didn't come to just set you free from the physical world so you can have some sort of mystical union with God. Like the physical world matters. He, he was embodied because your body matters. So when we devalue our physical existence, when we devalue our physical reality in any stretch or magic, we devalue the incarnation in the gospel. Because Jesus didn't just come to save your soul, he came to save everything. Like he, he's, he's coming to give you new bodies. He's coming to give you new life. He's coming to make a new heaven and a new earth. And so the incarnation explains and helps reiterate that significance. If we don't see it that way, then we miss the beauty and the profound mystery of the incarnation. He's coming to make it all new, right? And so how does he do it? He does so as a great high priest who makes atonement for the sins of his people. Now this, this is a beautiful image and a great title uh, that Jesus carries here. So the great high priest in Judaic custom uh, was the one that was given the responsibility to go and enter into the most holy of holies. He was the only one that could do it. And he would go in once a year on a day of atonement and he would shed blood to ask for forgiveness for his sins and for the sins of his people. Right? That was the only way that they found forgiveness was the shedding of, of blood in the most holy of holies to the great high priest. Right? And so the author of Hebrews takes us on an incredible journey. If you have time later today or this week, keep reading. Uh, get to chapters 5 through 10 and see this incredible explanation of how Jesus functions as the great high priest. That essentially... Right? Rather than one who enters into an earthly tabernacle made by human hands, he enters into the divine tabernacle that is everlasting. And rather having to come year after year with the shedding of blood, he comes once and for all for the shedding of his own blood to get forgiveness for people for all time. Right? It's, it's a remarkable depiction of Jesus as the great high priest. And so by taking on flesh, he empathizes with our sin. Right? He understands our need for forgiveness. He understands our need for atonement. And through the shedding of his blood, the simplest way I can explain it is that he takes all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness. Praise God. He's atoned for your sins. Right? And it takes that high priest that understands that sort of sacrifice that comes and intercedes on your behalf once and for all. And in that, you and I find grace we find forgiveness, we find hope, we find mercy. And he did it because he took on flesh, dwelt among us, sharing in our humanity. And when you think about all that, this is what leads me to really kind of this, this final verse, which is where I'm going to wrap us up and conclude our time together. What all of that should say to you is that your God is here to help you. He has helped you. And that's what the author wants you to see here. This is how he's trying to encourage his readers. That this is not just some sort of theological seminary class for the ancient Hebrews. Like he's trying to set them free from the fear of death that they were facing. Because if you keep reading, they were facing persecution, confiscation of their property, being thrown in prison. And so he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to invigorate them, saying, don't worry, your God's there to help you. You don't have to fear. Verse 18 tells us, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
Now, what, what is so remarkable to me about the incarnation more than anything else is the way in which it shows um, this incredible divine empathy that is at our um, disposal, that is, that is accessible to us. Empathy is incredibly powerful. And if anybody's ever gone through any sort of adversity or suffering, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? Because you go through something difficult. You, you go through loss of a loved one. You, you go through some sort of tragedy that's hard for you to, to put into words. There's something different when you find someone that's gone through the same struggle, that's gone through the same difficulty, and can look you in the eye and say, I know exactly how you feel. And what that does to your heart. Right? Just the feeling of going, man, I know I'm not alone in this. Someone else shares in this pain. They share in this suffering. And what that does to open us up to receive help. The fact that our God shared in our humanity and suffered in every way to the point of death, experiencing everything that the human existence offers to us, shows us that our God is a God that when we cry out to him and we're looking for help and we cry out to him in our pain, we cry out to him in our frustration, we cry out to him in our suffering, you have a God that says, I know. I know exactly how you feel. I've suffered for you and with you. And because I've endured such suffering, you can know that I'm here to help. I see you. I haven't forgotten you. I have concern for you. That's who your God is. And nothing communicates that to us more profoundly than the incarnation. Now, I'll admit to you, church, it's a mystery. <laughs> How we begin to comprehend that Jesus is fully God and fully man, my mind can't get wrapped around it. But it is a wonderful mystery. And even if it eludes our full comprehension, what I believe we need to do this morning is we need to behold it. We need to behold this mystery. And the way that I think we can best do that is to take some time in prayer and just cry out for help. Whatever it is that you need help with, I want you to cry out to him. And maybe you're not in a season where you have something tangible and specific that you need help with. Maybe, maybe you can reflect upon the past and how he's helped you. Or maybe you just want to give praise to him for being a God of help. But that's what I want us to respond to. I want us to behold this mystery by saying, God, I need you. And give great gratitude for the fact that he's a God that sees you and is concerned for you. And when you cry out to him in that desperation, he says, I know how you feel. And I've suffered for you. And I think that's the best way that we can behold this wonderful mystery of a God who is fully deity and fully man in Jesus Christ. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to stay seated. I'm going to ask the, the ushers to come forward, though. I mean, not the ushers, the, uh, the deacons to come forward and uh, assume a posture for them to receive anyone that wants prayer today. We're going to have them here at the front, on the sides, and in the back. And here's what I want to encourage you, y'all. Um, do what the Spirit leads you to do. We're just going to enter into a time of prayer for a little bit before we, we sing. And, and if you just need to stay seated to pray, pray. If you want to get up and move around and go ask somebody to pray for you, maybe it's a deacon, they'll pray over you. Maybe it's someone else. 
that you want to pray with. Feel the freedom to do that. You're, you're not tied to your seats. <laughs> you want to come to the altar and just get before the Lord and, and ha- have a posture of surrender before him? Feel free to do that. But I just want you to embrace this time by recognizing that your God is here to help you. And so bow your heads, close your eyes, and, and I want you just to feel the freedom to respond as you need. And I'll, I'll guide us through a little bit of this, and then here in a minute I'll, I'll close this, and then we'll stand and we'll sing together to conclude our time. But I want you just to take some time and ask God for help. Because I know some of the stories in here. And even the ones that I don't, I know that God does. We got people carrying grief because they've lost loved ones. We got people that are worried for their kids. Marriages that are barely hanging on. We got people that are infinitely frustrated with work and feel like it's been hard to find meaning, purpose, significance. We got students trying to figure out who they are, their place in this world, what friends to make. We got people trying to figure out what God wants to do with their life. We got so many concerns. So just ask him for help. He wants to help you. That's who he is. For those that think maybe you've escaped his notice, may the Spirit minister to you in this moment and remind you that he sees you. loves you. Just take some time and pray to him, however you feel led. that even if you don't understand what you're going through right now that just as the psalmist has cried out in every season of life so can we even when we don't see his help and we don't understand what he's doing we turn back to the cross we turn back to the manger turn back to the empty tomb and we see a God so rich in love that he shared in our humanity shared in this brokenness and knows what we have experienced knows what we have carried and has offered his life to make atonement for that burden to set us free so the last thing I want you to pray for is for God to give you his Holy Spirit in such a profound and overwhelming way that your life would be a life marked with freedom and not fear. (laughs) That we would reflect upon this gospel and all that it 
secures for us. And we would not be those crippled by fear and held in bondage by the schemes of the evil one, but declare the victory of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we would walk in that victory. We would hope in that victory. We would celebrate and demonstrate a posture of joy because we've been set free. Father, we thank you for such freedom. We thank you for the mystery of the incarnation. We behold it today in a way that I trust and know will minister to our hearts, our souls, and our minds. God, come and help your people, for we are in desperate need of you. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.